Welcome back, everyone, to the Fight Sites MMA podcast. I am your only host this time, Sri Ram. Uh, Danny is unfortunately out doing very important business of his own. I believe he's out body punching a house fire. So we wish the best of luck to him. And it's honestly very unfortunate that he's not here today because we have a lot to talk about on the last event, Khabib Nurmagomedov versus Justin Gaethje. And more importantly than that, this would have been one of the few times I got to gloat about getting both picks right, where he got both picks wrong, and the coward has not shown up. So... Unfortunately, Danny will not be here today, but I am joined by a pairing that we have wanted to get on the show for quite some time. We've got both the reps of the steps. We've got Haxerized and Tumen. So the host of Tangry Dome, Tumen, you should be listening to that if you're not already. And Haxerized, who we bring on after pay-per-views because he's just the smartest man in the universe. So uh, welcome, both of you. Uh, how are you feeling? Hey, hey, hey. Uh, how I'm feeling? I'm feeling very hungover. That's how I'm feeling. But I guess hangover is generally just that flavor. To what I'm saying, I suppose. So I suppose I'm doing fine. <laughs> I think half the chat was hungover after uh, Bobby Knuckles didn't fall over. Like, I think that's just how people <laughs> celebrate. They're like, oh, he's not dead. He can still fight. <laughs> Let's get fucking drunk. I think that's, yeah, I think that's how people reacted. Yeah, that was certainly how I reacted. But we should probably start with the important. Okay, so first of all, the elephant in the room is that next week there is pretty much nothing going on. Uh, as I speak, we're two days away from Anderson Silva versus Uriah Hall, which is going to be a depressing fight either way, even if Hall wins probably, or if Silva wins, like however it goes, it's probably going to be sad and slow, and whoever wins, there's going to be a ton of caveats. So whatever. And Andre Feely versus Bryce Mitchell, which I don't think anyone has any strong feelings about, but uh, Feely's cool, so you should like him. So we're mostly here to talk about last week's event, and let's start with the important one. Khabib Nurmagomedov retires after defeating Justin Gaethje via second-round submission, and I think this was a different—okay, well, let me put that a different way. I think this was a fairly unique fight from Khabib, even though a lot of what we expected from Justin in a losing fight was still there, in that it felt to me like Khabib fought Gaethje the way Gaethje used to fight his own opponents. Before he became the outfighter, Gaethje was the guy who would push forward, force mistakes out of his opponents where he could get into the situations where he wanted to get into. For, for uh, previous, Gaethje was often that clinch where he could back a guy up and get into the clinch and a guy would just stop being able to move around and would just be freaking out like, oh, what the hell is he going to do? This pace is too much. The guy's moving forward. He's too durable. And incidentally, that's what Khabib did to Justin Gaethje here. So a very interesting performance, a bit out of character for Khabib. But it worked like a charm. So, uh, Haxerized, how did you read this fight going in, and what surprised you, if anything? I mean, I kind of came down to two main thoughts. The first one was that people were so fixated on Geishi making stylistic reinventions that I don't think anyone sat down and thought, what can Habib do to you know, build on his game, particularly to integrate more effective striking into his game? And I think the second question was the one I put in the staff picks. Um, Geishi's shown us he can win two ways against top-level fighters. And the first way is to walk them down, to play our pressure game, which we all know. And I think there's you know, not much point taking it apart because that, that Geishi's a known quality at this point. And the second way he's shown us he can win fights since the Tony fight was by counterpunching, essentially, and using his firepower so to speak to dictate the pace of engagements by essentially shutting down most engagements and that was a very exciting development and the two together playing off each other i think is theoretically the strongest possible way to beat habib but um as i kind of said in the staff picks we haven't seen evidence that gaichi can put the two together yet and I think in many ways that's just a function of time. It's asking a lot for a fighter, any fighter, no matter how good or how smart, to show this whole new strategic approach to their game against a top three guy that is kind of a conscious step away from what they usually do and then expect them to harmonize the new version with the old version so they have two ways of winning that play off each other both exceptionally well. And I feel outside of the technical preparations, a lot of which was broken down by uh, Aiden in his very extensive 
breakdown of the fight, you know, and the fact that uh, Habib looked very well coached, for example, even early in the fight, Habib was um, circling away from leg kick, right straight, any attempts at Gaethje pressure long enough to the point where he got a sense of timing for what Gaethje does so that he could then start pursuing more aggressive options with lower risk. Um, yeah, I think it just came down to Habib saw that there was kind of a disconnection between the two the two halves of Gaethje, the two wolves of Gaethje, and ruthlessly abused that throughout the fight, got Gaethje into unfamiliar situations, got him panicking, got him working, and if Habib is able to get you working at his pace, you're probably going to lose. I think that's pretty much how I kind of read the fight. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the thing about Khabib generally is that as a striker, he's always been a little bit janky in a way that makes us analysts feel generally uncomfortable. Uh, you know, just watching him, it's like, oh, he's constantly looking very vulnerable, squaring up in the pocket and throwing his jab that's not really changing anything up. And he can just jab guys like Ally Quinta, but what if he does this to someone else? And against Gaethje, I think he, he didn't lose any of the jank. He's still defensively very weird um, and, you know, very vulnerable even. I wouldn't even say he's a superb defensive fighter. But it did show that he has an eye for striking that I think has been underlooked in favor of just, you know, he's technically deep as a striker just as much as he is a grappler, which is something not not just as much, but I have seen some things saying he's an elite striker and so forth. And I wouldn't say that, but I would say that he has a very good understanding of what he needs to do as a striker. Uh, for example, when Gaethje started ducking underneath or, uh, you know, in his low crouch, as Aiden mentioned in the article, uh, Khabib started punching that with both intercepting knees and like a snap kick to the body, which worked pretty well to back Gaethje up. And just in general, he knew what his win condition was to get Gaethje to the fence. And the fact that Gaethje was very, very aware of the fact that Khabib wanted to get him to the fence, it was just the execution that was neurotic and not comfortable at all that gave Khabib the opportunities to say, okay, if you're just going to circle out every time I get you near the fence, I'll just hit you while you're doing that. And that worked out well. So... I think Khabib has a very good idea of what he needs to do in a fight, and that's something that's harder to overcome, arguably, than just you know sheer technical depth. Because technical depth, the way that Gaethje fought Ferguson, I think, was, from the beginning, kind of the wrong way to approach Khabib. And he was the technically deeper fighter. We saw that even in this fight. But Khabib just had a way better idea of where his strengths were and how to how to tailor his game around them than Gaethje did in terms of, you know, I want to outfight this guy who's probably easiest beat with pressure. Like, that's just... Even if you can do it, it's not necessarily the advisable way. Tuman, what were your reads on this since uh, you're a noted Gaethje appreciator? <laughs> well, well, I'll admit that um, coming into the fight, I relied very much on my trust in uh, the pair of um, uh, the, the pair that uh, Gaethje and Whitman make together. I thought that this is a winning combination, and I still think so. I don't think that uh, this fight is a that much uh, of a black spot on the record but uh yeah what i read was that um uh well as hacks said he assumed that uh, well he pointed out that we have two gauges and i assumed that he would be able to blend it together which is uh, an assumption that hacks didn't make and uh, this assumption sort of burned me <laughs> at the end because uh, we obviously saw how easily habib uh, dismantled gauge but uh, the thing that uh, st struck me, that you pointed this out, that um, this this game, this fight came down to uh, better strategic uh, efficiency versus uh, technical depth. Like uh, this is something that we talk about all the time uh, in uh, something that Danny talks about all the time in his metagame uh, articles and. Uh, what I talked about in the UFC meatpacking plan uh, articles and something that we just discuss on and on and on on basically every podcast and every Twitter thread that we have online. So uh, Habib, uh, to me, uh, and this fight from Habib was particular, like uh, put particular emphasis on the concept of having a an optimized game, uh, like uh, not uh, not exactly trying to master every aspect of uh, of um, uh, every aspect of every phase of the fight but generally nailing down down the particular tools that you're going to need in order to get to your a game and this is habib this is something that habib has exploited throughout his entire career and something that he excelled at and uh, Gagey uh, had that 
for the first half of his career. And now that he's changed his style, it sort of goes, it sort of like threw him off uh, his focus. It's some, like I feel that's uh, that's a fair statement. Like uh, currently he's stuck between these two points, like what to do, what to do, and uh, uh, the way Habib put the pace on him, like there were there was a single moment in the beginning of the fight in the first round when Gage is pressed forward and it uh, and Habib moved back. But then Gagey hesitated, and then Khabib sort of like figured out, oh, he hesitates. I'm not going to do that, and he just uh, terminated his way through uh, Gagey for the rest <laughs> of the fight until the finish. That's uh, that's uh, like, uh, I mean, I covered the fight more extensively in the, uh, my Tengri Dome episode. Uh, so if uh, listeners missed that, go back and listen to that because I don't really want to restate everything that I've stated there. Uh, kind of. Uh, so I guess that's the extent of my read for now. I'm going to like maybe something will come back later to me. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about the fight, and we mentioned, we already talked a bit about how Khabib approached it, and I think. There's a little bit about how Gaethje approached it that I regrettably saw coming, not in the exact way that it happened, but the worry that I had for Gaethje in this fight was kind of twofold. And one was a very specific sort of technical thing that he could work on in camp, and the other is just a function of experience against this kind of archetype. The first one was the cage wrestling, and we didn't see a ton of that. We saw Gaethje get taken down against the fence uh, in the first round, but that wasn't really like an against-the-fence finish. Like, there wasn't any, you know, does-he-grip-fight-does-he-not type situations. It was just... Gaethje getting taken down in the open. Khabib turns the corner and Gaethje's against the fence, but he's not really using it. Um, so the cage wrestling, we didn't really get a conclusive answer on that, although given how prepared Gaethje was for Khabib's bottom game, I'm going to guess he was similarly prepared for the cage wrestling. Uh, and, that, <laughs> no, and that level of preparation is not very encouraging. But the overall concern I had for Gaethje in this fight was that he'd He'd do what Poirier did in a way that was maybe not as overtly dumb or as overtly scared, but in a way that would undermine the fundamentals of how one beats Khabib Nurmagomedov. And what worried me about that more was, as uh, Hacks mentioned, the fact that he was now an outfighter. Because my worry was that an outfighting style is way easier to adapt in a way that's wrong to Khabib. If you're a pressurer and you're very scared of Khabib, you're still going to pre- – and you've decided to pressure – you're still going to pressure him. You're not going to give up the center the way an outfighter just naturally does, right? So you might pressure him a little bit less, but you still got the center to work with. Where Gaethje, he was so pathologically aware of the fence behind him that a lot of times Khabib could just, you know, run him into shots off the fence. And that still didn't really help him because Khabib, you know, did a good job figuring out, finishing out, uh, finishing the takedown in the open with that uh, little getting to the back off the double. I think Gaethje kind of gave up the same way Poirier did. Gaethje kind of gave up a lot of the success that he could have had on the feet just by being so keyed in on defending the takedown. And that's fundamentally, it's easy to say from where I'm sitting uh, outside the cage with Khabib, but that's kind of fundamentally the wrong way to approach Khabib if you're that, you know, frightened of him. It's something that uh, Ryan said, and it's becoming, it's really funny to me as well, is that the fact that Conor McGregor approached Khabib with overconfidence and not you know, shitting his pants anytime Khabib walked forward is kind of hilarious to me because no one else has been able to muster that kind of confidence against Khabib. Instead of, oh, I need to back up. This is Khabib we're talking about. Connor was like, okay, I'm just going to knead this guy's head off literally the first time he does anything at all. That's That wasn't the right way to approach the fight, but I kind of think it's closer to how someone should approach a fight with Khabib than respecting everything he does. And I think previous Gaethje, I said this in the pre-fight article too, I think previous Gaethje would have been the kind to say, okay, Khabib is a takedown threat, but instead of dealing with the takedown threat by defending the takedown, I'm going to deal with the takedown threat by hitting him so hard and so often and pushing him back that he won't have time to shoot for a takedown. He might not have thought about it like that. He'll just be like, I'm going to do my thing. But that's how it might have functioned. Where here, he kind of outsmarted himself. And I think the fight did show that there was a route for Gaethje with you know his counter punching and his leg kicks, he did land quite a lot of those enough to maybe win the first round, but it was just a dynamic that was never going to go his way. Uh, there's a lot to be said about uh, fighter comfort, which is something that I've already talked about. Um, is that uh, uh, 
Geiji uh, has been like a, a, it may be a weird it may sound weird but uh, Geiji strikes me as a particularly uh, a weirdly insecure fighter in that he doesn't like necessarily deflate or just uh, fall apart whenever something doesn't go his way but uh, uh, it's something that uh, like earlier Geiji fought the way he did it's like you, you you've got this impression that he feels like he isn't good enough to uh, to fight any other way and now that he's uh, changed his style so drastically he's got this uh, pressure uh, he puts this pressure on himself that oh now I'm technical I've got to be technical in order to win fights and now I've got to got, got to show these cool slick looks in order to prove it to myself and uh, my coaches and everyone else that I am not the dumb brawler that I used to be and uh, in, in this fight it was particularly apparent and that like uh, I've, as I've pointed, already pointed out, he moved forward and then figured, oh no, that that's not the game plan. I'm going to go on the back foot and going to outslick Khabib, and, and by and as a result, by the end of the first round, he was basically looked even worse than he usually did after five round brawls when he was on the on the front foot. So it's a question of comfort. So like uh, trying to fight in this way was even more taxing for him than if he would have just if he would have just went nuts essentially right like i think the the worry with picking anyone against khabib moving forward and this is something that hacks has mentioned uh in maybe the ferguson podcast but there are certain fighters like Abdulaziz abdulakhabov who i would say have a good chance at beating khabib and Eddie Alvarez is another one who's like, okay, he has the positioning on the back foot, the ability to work in combinations on the inside, the ring craft. Oh, oh dear, the ring craft is like the most important one, but he has the ring craft in <laughs> these previous fights to say, yes, he might beat Khabib. But the fact that Khabib has been able to create such a mythos around himself means that even Eddie Alvarez might be like, okay, this guy has the takedown. Let's work backwards from prevent the takedown rather than let's work from... I want to do what I do. So, yeah, I'm not sure how much there is to say in terms of, like, small technical thoughts. Uh, Hacks, you got any further thoughts on this fight? I think probably two things. The, the first thing is I think Geishi is more of an unfinished product than people realize. And as, as you know, Dan has kind of spoken about... When Gaethje is able to find a harmonization point between the two Gaethje, so to speak, each one will become more powerful. He can have his pressure to create room in the center of the octagon, and then he can counterpunch off that, so on and so forth. And that's, I think, what he had to do to beat Habib, because I think there were so many adjustments that Habib had that were just look you know gave him a lot of room to push justin around the ring in particular you know technically perhaps his his work with his jab was was awkward and you know unoptimal but it did a fantastic job of keeping geishi thoroughly off his own rhythm and i think that would have applied even if geishi was trying to pressure like i think habib was creating a lot of opportunities to get shit done so to speak the second thing i would say is that I think Habib is probably the best example I've ever seen in mixed martial arts of the difference between somebody who is very fundamentally sound and who is very technically sound. So maybe to use a, use an example of the difference, to me, when somebody is fundamentally sound, they are doing things for a clear reason with a valid purpose as part of a clear process and that process builds on their strengths, whereas the technical side is more how, you know, how good are your mechanical skills at executing? So maybe to use like an example of um, Ringcraft, say in a theoretical world, you're a lightweight fighter and you're fighting prime RDA and you're a outfighter. Your, to me, the fundamental skills of your Ringcraft would be like how aware of you sorry, how aware are you of your positioning relative to the cage? Like if you're really conscientious about never conceding too much ground, 
uh, never taking two steps back. You are very dialed into your position in the center of the ring relative to the cage. That's what I would call good fundamental skills with ring craft. Your technical skills with ring craft would be how efficiently do you move, how well do you distribute weight when you're moving across the cage, how well does your movement across the cage ring craft-wise play into your weapons. Like, can you chamber your movement into a good counter kick or a good jab return, so on and so on and so on. And I've always felt like uh, Habib is exceptionally strong on the fundamental level. Almost all of the striking that he's developed comes with a specific purpose. So as Aiden uh, observed in the breakdown, uh, Habib's jab was technically awful sometimes and technically quite good sometimes in the Gaethje fight. But it almost always did a good job of dissuading Gaethje from lateral movement. So fundamentally, the jab was doing do even if technically it was a little awkward and i think one of the reasons that many people have been slow to attribute habib's striking in particular the respect it deserves is because they've become too dialed in on the technical side and i would also argue that while i think i was one of the first people to talk about the mythos of habib i probably don't attribute his mythos to as great a percentage of his wins as other people do Like, I think it is something that has encouraged people to have bad preparation habits against Habib, but I still think he's doing a tremendous amount of good fundamental work in the fights to get the wins. And I think the Aiden breakdown really does a good job of stressing that, particularly with how Habib used his striking. And maybe the one moment for me that really sticks out was when Habib went to the body with kicks. He didn't do it very often. He might have only done it once. But it was just so unexpected from Habib to throw that strike, in my humble opinion. And it just, Gaethje's reaction was like, what? He can do that to me? Like, it just seemed to throw him off so much and make him add an extra half step backwards to his movement. It was, to me, a a really, really brilliant example of how just one strike in a context of a fight, even if you're losing the stand-up, can establish an entirely new threat and really play with the other person's positioning across the ring. Yeah, the thing about that, I, I think Habib is a particularly interesting example of a fighter that people understudy somewhat because uh, there's always this uh, um, temptation to overplay the uh, attributes and skills of a challenger because you've seen a champion on top for so long and so you kind of sort of want to see uh you, you sort of feel like you've you already know the game of the champion and so you have to like emphasize the strengths of the challenger in order to uh in order because you want the fight to be compelling you want the fight to be back and forth and maybe you want the fight to test the skills of the champion but uh and habib is uh like He's an example of a fighter who grew fundamentally over the course of his career, and it's something that not a lot of people noticed, because uh, uh, the usual image of Habib in people's heads is uh, that he's this very janky, awkward, uh, like, sort of... uh, uh, Fuck. (laughs) Give me a moment. I'm trying to come up with a funny description. Uh... Is like a very janky, like goblin that jumps up and down and like scares people away by being like wild and unpredictable. But in fact, he's always been narrowing down. The, he's always trying, always been trying to grow in his composure on the feet and uh, ability to actually get where he wants without uh, throwing out too much random useless volume. And uh, he, I feel like he's learned to leverage the unknowns about himself and leverage the attributes and aura that he's got about himself. And uh, it's something that many other fighters could study and could benefit from by trying to emulate. Not exactly the technical things that he uses, that he employs, but the, spe- the, the more meta stuff that surrounds him, like uh, like his uh, like this that like that kick that uh, Hacks mentioned. It's uh, something that was unexpected, unexpected because nobody knew that he could do that. And uh, it's something that you you could have a particular particular game that everyone associates you with, but still adds things to it uh, at will when necessary. And Habib is very very um, he's a very smart fighter when it comes to that. 
because he's willing to just look at the tool, see how it's useful to his particular game and to this particular fight, and just throw it out. Who cares if it's pretty or not? Just use it. And that's the extent of my thoughts on this particular topic. Yeah, I mean, I think the kick is one of the things that uh, really stuck out to me as well in terms of how Khabib approached the fight. Uh, In general, I think Khabib, as you mentioned, he's very good at understanding what his opponents know about him in that a lot of fighters, they just assume that that their opponent's going to come in blind in terms of what they do and how they operate. And a lot of times it's true because fighters are not very well prepared in the sport in general. Uh, But with Khabib, (laughs) it's very rare that a fighter goes, okay, I'm just going to fight this dude how I fight him. And Khabib knows that a lot of guys are going to be very, very nervous about that kind of margin. And I think that's kind of what he exploited against Justin Gaethje. As Hax mentioned, there are a lot of very good things that Khabib does in terms of fundamentals that could go to any fighter whose opponents are not scared of him. Uh, I mentioned in the chat once that the Russian MMA scene has a much better, not a much better, a much more wrestling meta game where there are a lot more fighters who are keyed in on top control and cage wrestling and that kind of thing. So there are a lot of fighters who I think wouldn't freak Khabib Nurmagomedov, but he is going to beat the vast majority of them, 99% of them, just by being way better <laughs> at the things that they do. He's just going being to beat them. As well. they, could, they could be as calm as they want. They could be ice cold in there. They could be Alexander Volkanovsky tier, just chill. And Khabib Nurmagomedov would just take them down in the open and kill them. So it's not to say that Khabib doesn't have these skills, because he absolutely does, and deny it at this point would just be <laughs> one of the silliest things I could possibly say in the sport. But against elite-level competition who do know what they're doing against Khabib, he knows that they're going to be very uncomfortable with the sort of margin that they haven't experienced before. And I think that's what Gaethje was running into here. Because Gaethje, if there's anything we've learned about Justin Gaethje, it's that he can take a punch, or two, or three, or four. Margins has never been the kind of thing that Justin Gaethje has had to worry about. It's the kind of thing that his opponent has had to worry about. But Khabib Nurmagomedov is just such a, a unique fighter in how strong he is in his strongest area and how easy it is to lose track of what he's doing there that Gaethje was the one who had to worry about the margins for once and Khabib just took full advantage of that he he pushed Gaethje back hard he knew that Gaethje would just he'd be so keyed in on avoiding the fence that he'd just forget all the composure that he needed in order to win the fight and not just not lose it and as long as you're not losing a fight that's fine but eventually you're not going to win it so I think Khabib Nurmagomedov, so insofar as where he lands as an all-time great, and I think this is something that's also worth talking about, uh, I have him as a top five, and that might be, um, you know, influencing your responses a little bit. But I think Khabib Nurmagomedov is a top five on resume. Justin Gaethje is a genuinely brilliant win. And even more than that, I think it's a win that a lot of people expected him to have in a much harder fight. Because I think... Gaethje is the kind of opponent, both incredibly smart in previous fights, incredibly offensively potent, to give Khabib some serious trouble. And he gave Khabib some decent trouble, but it wasn't a catastrophic fight that Ga- that Khabib had to win by the skin of his teeth. Khabib looked like he was going to win that fight from the beginning. So I think that's incredibly impressive. Uh, to use Ed's system, Khabib is one of the best win collectors in the history of the sport, both in terms of, you know, the division he's in that helped him do that, and in terms of how impressive his opponents were going into the fight. So, yeah, what do you guys think about where Khabib stands among the Pantheon? And if you say under John Jones, I'm going to shoot somebody. <laughs> well, well, the thing is that that's why I'm so bummed, really, because he looked genuinely brilliant. I think he looked career best against Gagey. Like He's zeroed in on all the things that he needed to do in order to win this. And yep. He did this practically effortlessly and so i would really love to see more of that khabib against more elite fighters but then comes the question of who is there to beat him anyway like who will offer him the challenge of like uh that that would uh, give him a compelling fight because he basically just mops up everyone at this point so top five for me as well uh, i think he's going to bounce around in that top five with time but i think uh, he cemented himself in that column Basically, essentially, by the sheer fact that he shook up the meta so much because nobody did the things that he did as him, as good as him, or even in the same way that he does. 
So, all-time great. Hacks, how about you? I mean, I think I said it in the roundtable. Like, if he's not in your top five, um, like, what's wrong with you? Um, <laughs> like, I'm I'm still not entirely sure where in the five. Like, I'm leaning still towards five right now. Um, and, and I, I that's pa- even pa- although I admit partially that's because like I have a feeling that. Max's fights with Volkanovski are going to keep aging really well, and they've already aged, like, incredibly. Um, I think Habib is... Like, I, I've said this a few times, mostly as a joke, and I'm starting to feel like it's actually some substantive analysis. Uh, self-awareness is the most important tool in MMA, if you're actually good enough to be elite, and Habib might have the most self-awareness of any fighter in the... um in the UFC right now, and quite possibly one of, one of the greatest amounts of self-awareness of any fighter to ever do it. That's a big part of why he wins on top of being, you know, incredible at what he does. Um, yeah, I think he has to be top five. Um, and honestly, I don't think there's anything left for him to do in the sport except fight Usman. I think that's pretty much the only thing <laughs> that's left for him to do. Because, like... I'm going to be honest, I don't see him winning that because as good as he is, the size advantage and the fact that Usman has some magical ability to draw like zero point energy from another dimension to keep fighting at the pace he does over five rounds. (laughs) I do think that Usman's got... He's fucking enormous. (laughs) Yeah, he's such a big man. But I like if, if, if Abib fought Usman and he made it competitive and he showed that like he's arguably a better technical fighter in the areas in which they're both so brilliant. That would like, I would start thinking, Oh man, maybe he deserves to be top three or better. If he beat Usman, I think I might just put him as number one and never talk about MMA again. But I, that's how, that's how good Habib is for me. I think Usman's the only compelling fight for him left in the UFC. I think he's just, he's squished everybody else. Maybe there's a rematch with Geishi, um, two or three years down the track when he's, you know, kind of hit his peak but that's it like that's how good he is Usman's the only compelling fight and that's like a ridiculous weight disadvantage so there you go the thing about self-awareness is also that Habib is actually smart enough to be self-aware and smart enough to realize when he doesn't need to think about uh, uh, his own game like he just comes in sure of himself that he's going to win and Gagey is Smart enough to realize that he's dumb, but not dumb enough to realize that he doesn't need to think about it so much. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's basically why he lost. This entire podcast is just very weird ways to explain things. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> it works. It works. We're, we're trying to shake up things. We're, we're Definitely works. The formula. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I think... Khabib isn't necessarily going to struggle with the lack of, like, a valiant loss the way Max Holloway has to Volkanovski, or the way Aldo has to Max and um, Max and Peter Yen, and even Marlon Moraes, or the way GSP has to Hendricks. He lost that fight, shut up. But <laughs> I think, yeah, I think there are a lot of people who would just intrinsically value an undefeated record, and I'm not one of those people because I think there are a lot of fighters who, well, okay, well, first of all, the difference between a prospect loss at the beginning of your career and not having that prospect loss is completely moot to me. Like Kamaru Usman losing to Jose Caceres and not losing to Jose Caceres to have that one on his record is just, I don't care at all. So an undefeated record doesn't matter to me. But more than that, I think a lot of it's just based on career management. And I think Khabib's had very good career management in order to retire at this point because he's at his peak. And he would definitely accrue some losses if he fought for five more years, just as a function of A, how quick the sport develops, B, how deep weight is to eventually uh, adapt to a fighter of his caliber and see the fact that he himself will eventually start to decline as all fighters do so Khabib is going to keep that undefeated record and I think that's a reason to intrinsically have him higher because there are a lot of factors that aren't just how good are you at fighting at your peak but I do think that regardless of that lack of a loss that's you know that shows how good he truly is at his very best against an opponent who forces him to fight at that very best I think it's really hard for me to keep him out of the top five just because he keeps winning. (laughs) And, like, it's something that I really value that kind of loss from an all-time great, and it seems kind of counterintuitive. But 
Khabib is just not in a position to ever have that. So, uh, yeah, pretty clear top five. And uh, any closing thoughts from you all? I think it's a Khabib is going to be a very good example of learning for other fighters to learn how to play the game, play the long game, because that's how Habib has got to retire when he did. Uh, like he kept himself, he always kept, uh, he always tried to be defensively, defensively responsible at all times. He always planned meticulously for all his uh, fights. He always zeroed in on his strengths and, di- and uh, on his opponent's weaknesses and ignored everything else. And uh, uh, as much as I'm bummed that he didn't get uh, to fight a fighter that uh, would push himself, push him to the brink and put, make him really work for his success. And uh, like even if he lost somewhere down the line, th- this would have would have only enforced my view of him as an all-time great rather than be a knock on his resume because that that's that uh, gives you more things to look at and more things to evaluate uh, but um, but yeah uh, Khabib I think is going to go down as one of those fighters that people would really study and I think the very upsetting thing about this is that I think people are going to take going to have wrong takeaways about his career because people will zero in on that zero <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm genuinely sorry, but this is what they're going to do. And uh, the idea of Khabib is going to be that uh, people will think, start thinking like, oh, wrestling is where it's at, and they're going to be basically mini Khabibs, and they're going to look awful and boring, first of all. And second of all, uh, fans are going to go around yelling some stuff like, uh, oh, undefeated, undisputed. Etc. Etc. The same they do with Mayweather, and just this is this has nothing to this is has nothing to do with Habib really, uh, in the sense that it's not his fault. People are just dumb, but this is something that really bums me out going forward. I think one thing that just stands out to me is I was talking about this with Kyle. Um, Habib was willing to spend his chin to get that Geishi win, and if you're in a position in your career where you can say this is my last fight. I'm going to risk some brain damage. I'm going to get that win, boys. You've done a pretty damn good job of managing your career and setting yourself up for success. And there's there's something to be said um, about preserving your athleticism, preserving your chin, preserving your, uh, shall we say, life bar, if you want to lean into the fighting game terms, to use it in one last burst to get the more important win of your career. That's what Habib did and if more fighters thought that way then we'd have a lot less brain damage we'd have a lot less cte and we'd have a lot less stories like a certain uh former light heavyweight champion who again got clanged on golden boy productions so you know uh, if people uh, learn, if people learn the, if people learn, if people learn the right lessons from habib then i'm all for it yeah the thing with habib is also that uh People will always point at him. Like, if you read Danny's metagame articles on, initi- on initiative and all that, you'd think that Habib is very uh, is a very MMA fighter in that he like always pushes forward, always pushes his game, tries to be the best Habib that there is uh, and ever was and all that. But he subverts many of the um, typical MMA staples, like uh, being shot by age thirty or. <laughs> Uh, not planning accordingly for your fights and all that and uh, uh, yeah the thing about chins is that uh, yeah I'm in agreement with Hacks uh, because uh, uh, look at uh, Robert Whittaker even though he's had his amazing performance uh, last night you still felt immense trepidation about his uh, chances down the line because uh, I feel like his chin is no longer there after all those fights and after all those years of training the way he did. So even for all his technical and strategic brilliance, I feel, I feel like I cannot point at Robert Whittaker and say that to other fighters and maybe martial arts enthusiasts to look at Whittaker and emulate everything he did because look at the way at the state of him right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a nice segue into the co-main event, 
which was Robert Whitaker defeating Jared Cannonier in a fight that I think we were all pretty scared about. Uh, one last thing that I think it's kind of, it would be wrong for it to go un, uh, unmentioned, which is Khabib's uh, father. His, his father's death was a big narrative going into the fight, probably a bit too big, but you know, not too big in terms of how it affected Khabib, because obviously it did a lot. But in terms of, you know, just the promotional weight put behind a tragedy like that always makes me very oh, uncomfortable. Because, uh, you know, like, even past the possibility of him losing and making the fight a referendum on his father being a bit tasteless, the way they did with, like, <laughs> it's like the way they did Walt Harris's daughter's death. And they're like, ooh, Walt Harris, if he wins, he'll get redemption for his daughter. And it's like, no, that's what? not how a fight works. Oh, that, that was fucking ghoulish. That was fucking disgusting. Yeah, that was awful. What was Let that? Let summarize this one because Danny's not here. Fuck the UFC straight from the underground. <laughs> yep, I mean, yep. that's all I have to say about the promotion. But I also think that Khabib's father also deserves a... I mentioned kind of like Lomachenko and Papachenko, where you have a coach who's really shaped his fighter from the ground up to be what he is right now, a real meta-defining fighter. And... It's kind of – it's probably going to go a little bit unnoticed if the promotion didn't do it that way, but I'd still rather they not have done it that way. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah. weird. Yeah. That's – that's and the whole thing with the media asking questions, constant questions to her people. Oh, how, how, how did the death of your beloved father affect you? Like, I take a guess. <laughs> that's not a question that you should be asking it's his, people. It's his fucking dad. What do you think, you fucking asshole? Yeah, I mean, it genuinely, like, I'm not even someone who really likes Khabib that much, but it genuinely pained me to see him having to go, like, oh, yes, my father died, please stop asking me this. Like, okay, you got the answer one time. <laughs> what else do you want him to say? He should have jumped the press the way he did Dylan Dennis. That's what he should have oh, done. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. But to keep the segue going, Robert Whitaker, Jared Cannonier, I think this was a fight that... Did all three of us pick Whitaker here? I know Danny picked Cannoneer because he is a crystal yes. coward. But We all picked uh, Whitaker because we are smart boys. We yep. have big brains, big wrinkly <laughs> brains, unlike Danny's uh, like baby smooth brain <laughs> that you could accelerate from and go into stratosphere. But... Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that this was not a worrying fight for Robert Whitaker. I mean, considering that he got dropped by Darren Till, who is far less offensively potent than Jerry Cannonier, the former heavyweight, as the commentary was very enthusiastic to point out, like, every three seconds. But I, I mean, think... That's just, that just tells you that he's bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think this was one of two ways that this fight was going to go, with the other one being Cannonier just kind of rushes him, kicks his leg off, and punches him in the head. Uh, Whitaker being the far deeper boxer, the one with the richer variety of setups, the one who can uh, play his threats off other threats and start linking his kicks with his punches. It's just there were a lot of worries here for Jared Cannonier that I think he wouldn't be able to address in uh, one camp. Fighter and Robert. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it kind of went the way I thought. Like, looking at Jared Cannonier get jabbed up by Jan Blahovic and favoring him against Robert Whitaker was a bit of a leap too far, even with my worries about Robert Whitaker's form. So let's start with that. Hacks, what did you think of Robert Whitaker and Jared Cannonier? How dare you people doubt Bobby Knuckles? How <laughs> dare you? <laughs> he's, he's like one of two hopes I have against Australia's combat sports scene being marching with less brain dead. Don't take it away from me. <laughs> um, now, Bobby's going to get back to the belt. What about the Australian cricket team? What about the Australian cricket team? Australian cricket team can just jump into a vat of boiling acid, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, I'd like this. This was the fight he needed to fight. He preserved himself. He had, you know, he even threw in because he's just he's just such a mad lad. A moment at the end, we got tagged enough. Chat shit um, yeah. He just needed to make his own win look good. Like if he just shut Cannonier out, say, like, "Oh, Cannonier is just useless." McKenna, you heard him at the end, so you're like, ah, oh, Cannonier's danger. But I think in the end, like, I said that I, I thought this fight was worrying less because I thought Whitaker would fall over from a stiff breeze and more because Cannonier's way to win was pretty much the only way he knows how to win, and it was such a simple plan. It was too dumb to fail. 
And he very much tried it, and I think Cannoneer showed a pretty good eye for what he needed to do. I don't think he's a particularly stupid fighter, although he has some very stupid opinions outside of fighting. Um, but, <laughs> you know, in the end, he wasn't good enough to get it done, and Whitaker's chin wasn't bad enough for him to die. And I'm I'm happy with that fight. I I think. Cannonier shouldn't be too unhappy with it. I mean, obviously he got his ass beat, but um, he had, a, you know, I think he had a pretty solid plan and tried to make it work. He just wasn't good enough, and Whitaker was good enough to win. He didn't take too much damage, and he should take some time off and you know get ready for a second Izzy fight, you know, because so, he beats Izzy not. and he's probably going to slit his wrist oh, and jump out a window. I don't want to see that again. Yeah, I don't think that in my life. I think Izzy can just move up to face Jan Blahovic or something. Like, I don't really have any need to see that fight again. Like, I think Whitaker, it says a lot that I think the rematch goes very badly for Whitaker, and that is probably the most compelling rematch available for Israel Adesanya at this point. Because, I mean, as bad a matchup as it is for Whitaker, he's still a genuinely superb elite fighter who can adjust through a fight, which makes it pretty interesting. But, yeah, I agree with all that. I think... It's really impressive to me. Like, it looked like a prime Whitaker-type fight in, you know, just the sort of opponent, the pace, the range, the directionality of the fight were all very prime Whitaker-esque in terms of the opponents he faced, the plotting Jack Ray Souza, and the... Yo Romero... I I don't have an adjective to describe Yo Romero, I'm sorry. A golem. (laughs) That's a noun, but... (laughs) Who gives a shit? English is not my first language. (laughs) Fair enough. Have you played Minecraft? Golem is a perfectly fine adjective. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, that's true. That's true. (laughs) Okay. But, yeah, I think this was a very Whitaker-esque fight uh, that Darren Till and Israel Adesanya were not. I especially like how... Wait, wait, wait. wait. Whitaker fought a Whitaker-esque fight? Very. I know that's (laughs) very new. (laughs) Who's better at English now? I'm still very good at English. No, not really. But considering that <laughs> Izzy and Till were kind of weird fights from Whitaker, I think it's kind of a classical Whitaker fight that he fought. Um, I really enjoyed how he kind of funneled Jared into the head kick later in the fight, where he took away the the little dip that he did with like a lead uppercut, an up jab instead of just a regular jab. And then he started uh, drawing out the slip and hitting him with these uh, right hands. So he drew out bigger and bigger slips from Jared and eventually just drew out the slip with the straight and kicked him right behind it. It was a, it was just what you love to see from Robert Whitaker in terms of how he builds his offense. Um, defensively, kind of the same as usual. I think I kind of have a hunch that shifting things give Whitaker some problems because that's how Yul Romero got uh, Whitaker in the rematch where he kind of shifted through a right hand and Whitaker lost track of which stance Yul was in. And this time it was... Cannonier like fainted a kick to draw the counter jab, stepped into southpaw, and then hit him with a right hook as he threw the jab. So, you know, it's like there are setups that guys can do to land on Whitaker, but generally he's just going to adapt through a fight and take them away, which is, you know, what you love to see from a fighter who's supposed to be a striker. So, yeah, Robert Whitaker's the GOAT. He beat Khabib head-to-head at size parity. I will die on this hill. And <laughs> hopefully he never fights Adesanya and just gets to dunk on Paulo Costa and break his arms with head kick after head kick. Uh, yeah, the thing about uh, Whitaker's uh, wonkiness when it comes to defending shifty things, I think it has to do with his uh, preferred method of defending rear strikes. It's uh, usually shoulder rolls of them, and uh, the shifty things kind of give you an angle against that. And uh, yeah, overall with the fights, it was uh, that was basically vibrating in my seat the whole time because that's just how I feel whenever it comes to Bobby fights, because Bobby. As uh, the honorable Bushido samurai that he is, he always feels the need to give his opponent something to work with. And either uh, after after <laughs> like a three or four or two dominant rounds, and uh, by the end of that, <clears throat> like he looked incredible throughout the fight, and then at the end he just had to get dinged. He just can't resist doing it. <laughs> and I saw, uh, and I was like, yes, yes. Safety leads, faints, jab him, jab him. Ah, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, please stop doing that. Just just be safe. I mean, that was smart for him trying to grind it out at the end. So that was uh, that was great. I was afraid he, he's going to start uh, giving and taking and just break my heart to pieces. But he didn't do that. Because he's, uh, 
at least he's smart enough to do that. <laughs> he still has some self-preservation instincts in him. I also think perhaps to cut through some Bobby Doomerism, um, a component that is often overlooked is Bobby had to, re- as far as we can tell, has had to completely rebuild his philosophy of training, his philosophy of self-improvement. He's had to basically fix everything about himself because his old way of brute forcing training until it works isn't viable anymore, right? I think something that is perhaps a little overlooked by people is that the weird fights, you know, against Adesanya, against Till, it seems like there's a progress back upwards for Bobby with respect to how he plans out fights, how his game plans fit together, how safe he's prepared to be. I am not going to assume this yet, but I think there's an argument to be made that he hit a low point in his career, particularly with respect to his durability, and we may see it slowly curve up again because he's able to train in a way that isn't necessarily self-destructive. Um, one example that still sticks to me is uh, Miocic fought Ngannou and he took a lot of damage and he fought DC relatively quickly with respect to the amount of damage he took and with respect to remember how hard Ngannou hits and flatlines people and his durability looked quite compromised in that first fight against DC. Then we then proceeded to watch him fight DC two times over and his durability went back up. Now I'm not saying that all chins recover equally and I'm not saying that Whitaker's chin is guaranteed to improve but I do think there is a question that we may be seeing Whitaker back on the slow path up because he's no longer training in a self-destructive way. And I think it would be good to watch this space with Whitaker and, you know, see how things come together. I also hope in one sense that if Adesanya does move up now to take a fight, particularly against John Jones, um, because it's a good time to do so without, I think, disrupting too much of the flow of the middleweight division, then the next fight Bobby gets is one that allows him to continue to, work his process and hopefully not get hit too much because if he is going to, shall we say, piece himself back together durability wise, I think he has a lot more left in the tank and it would be nice to see him get the middleweight title again because there are still people out there that insist he wasn't a true middleweight champion because he technically didn't win in a fight as if fighting Yo Romero twice, 25 minutes each time, isn't enough of a reason to literally get the title out of fucking sympathy. I've, I've only got one thing to say to those people. Fuck you. Fuck your arguments. Fuck your technically not a champ stuff. Shove it up your fucking ass, you assholes. Yeah, I think that's kind of the issue with people caring about, like, the lineal belt, which is that, like, if Michael Bisping was an official quote-unquote champ and Robert Whitaker wasn't, it's just kind of broken and you have to ignore it. <laughs> but I mean, belts in the UFC generally just mean nothing. Yeah, it's the just... Champion it, is, the champion it, is just a promotional tool for them. Yeah, I mean, it's a conversation that we, I don't think we've had on this podcast, but I, you can see a ton of examples of how belts are often just... Um, the products of the matchmaking as much as they are products of just one guy clearly being the best... Uh, my consistent griping about Rafael Assunção is a good example of that because there was a point where he could have been uh, a champion if he got the title fight at the right time, but he did not because the promotion hated him. Aljamain Sterling is a good example right now because uh, Corey Sanhagen, that fight probably should have been for a belt, uh, at least an interim belt, and it wasn't. So that I think considering Robert Whitaker not a champion when he beat the best guy in the division consensus at UFC 213 and then fought him again and defended against him. That's just really silly. Uh, insofar as how I think Whitaker does moving forward, I think Paulo Costa is a pretty easy matchup for him in terms of, you know, just like the kind of fight that he likes having. It's not going to be a guy who draws him out, makes him cover distance and smacks him for it the way Darren Till tried or the way Adesanya did consistently over and over. Uh, Costa is going to go right at him unless he, you know, is very, very scared. But I think there are some there's some intrigue in that fight with the kicks, with um, you know, Costa being such an active kicker generally and Whitaker being worse at dealing with it than Adesanya. But I think that's a good fight to make if Adesanya's moving up. And I think Adesanya should move up because Jan Blahovic, frankly, as much as I like Jan, he's uh, he's easy work for Adesanya. And uh, that's an easy two-division championship thing for him that Adesanya, frankly, deserves because he's cleaned out middleweight and the guy he beat for the belt has cleaned the rest of middleweight out. So 
Yeah, for where Bobby goes from here, I really hope that uh, you're right, Hacks. I think it's possible that Whitaker is just back on the upward trajectory. I also kind of struggle with it, considering how long Whitaker has been fighting inside that uh, incredibly toxic, destructive Australian sports culture, because he's like, he's pretty deep into his career. He's had a ton of injuries. I don't know how long he can keep going at this level, but it's hard not to enjoy when he's here, because he's one of my favorite fighters, one of my favorite fighters to watch, period, just ever. He's so good. I mean, uh, part of the reason why we enjoy watching him so much is that apparently he's in so much pain, pain from overtraining, he can't help but but yearn for early release of death. <laughs> That's why his fights are usually so exciting. <laughs> That's why we love him, particularly the Zuma demographic. <laughs> I mean, he's basically thanks I hate it in an MMA fighter. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, about that Polo Costa matchup, I think uh, there's also the, an avenue for Whitaker in that Costa is a better kicker from open stunts, which we saw against AZ. I think he may rectify it, but I don't think he's going to show it all that much. Yeah, uh, I mean, generally, yeah. I'm not. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. The, Robo, I think, is just plain not going, plain not going to give him the opportunities to kick him up. He's just going to spear his face off with the jab. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very possible, and I think Whitaker dealing badly with kicks is kind of, he's kind of inconsistent with it. Because if you look at the Romero fight, especially the Romero rematch, he did a solid job um, countering the kicks, even with, you know, he'd draw his leg up and dart in with that big left hook. Or he'd uh, cover up and, like, he, he even managed to keep Romero from punching off kicks at certain points. Romero would have to, like, punch in combination off the kicks to really make that work. So I don't think Costa's going to get the kicks for free necessarily, even against Cannoneer. Cannoneer, like, landed some big, big kicks on the leg. But Whitaker eventually just started jabbing, double-jabbing through them because Cannoneer's footwork off the kicks isn't really anything. He'd just kick and stand there. So Whitaker could just put another jab behind it and run him back. So... I think someone as shallow as Costa is genuinely going to struggle a ton against Robert Whitaker unless he just puts him out early. It's just the same kind of I'm worried about Whitaker because it's Whitaker than anything specific about his skills. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I think kicking is it's a root against. We saw in this fight it's both a root against Whitaker and it's not a foolproof root against Whitaker. Yeah, Whitaker just kind of can take a kick and then remember that he's getting, getting kicked and then punish you for it and then forget about it again. Whitaker is just kind of scatterbrained like that. Like he, he can, he's like he's like <laughs> a combination of weirdly focused and uh, um, weirdly focused and uh, aware of uh, of where he is and what he's going to do at all times. And sometimes he just plain forgets things. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like sometimes he just forgets that he's a, a, a an excellent boxer and starts blitzing like an idiot all the time, like we saw against Till and uh, the Sanya. And and in this fight, he remembered that he can actually box. So thank you, Bobby, for being you, I suppose, because <laughs> you're never boring. Even though I wish you were sometimes. <laughs> Well, Honestly, on that... your fear over Whitaker is why you can't appreciate the beauty of Ngannou Siriam. Just relax and enjoy the stupidity. <laughs> like... <laughs> I, I mean... welcome um, 20, 20 title defenses from Ngannou by sheer accident. <laughs> it's just an endless cavalcade of bonks. <laughs> 19 That's chaos and one, and one unanimous decision with 15 knockdowns. <laughs> That's what I'm banking on. On Ngannou, apparently they're doing the Stipe fight in March, and I really wish they wouldn't, because I think um, that's going to be very sad for all of us Stipe appreciators. But anyway, I think that's all. Is there anything very pressing on this next card that you guys want to talk about? I don't even know what I'm, what is in the next card, aside from Uriah Hall Silver. I mean, I guess Uriah Hall could lose by going like, oh, I don't want to hurt this nice old man. And it's going to be very dumb. But, I mean, there's Andre Feely, and I always want Andre Feely to win because him winning makes Calvin Cater and Michael Johnson look like the best fighters in the world. But other than that, not really. So uh, any parting thoughts from y'all? I I want Bryce Mitchell to, uh, like, drill a hole in his nutsack again and never fight. (laughs) That's what I think about. (laughs) (laughs) 
hacks anything more pleasant. Uh, and remember, Andre Philly is a more technically proficient fighter than anyone in light heavyweight. Yup, and that's about where we're going to leave it. Uh, go yeah. to... It's shit, John Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, tough to argue with that. So go to Hyperfly, get some gear through the link at the bottom of our website. Go to ExpressVPN through the link at the bottom of our website. Go to Bovada and get $250 matched if you go through the link at the bottom of our website or our Twitter bio. Uh, all the plugs, go, uh, support our Patreon to suggest topics for this podcast, and uh, so much more, as all of our patrons could attest. We're very, very good at providing content on time. Uh, but And also our Discord is very good, so you should consider that. And uh, that's all there is. Next week, Danny should Listen be back. Listen to my podcast. Oh, yeah, Listen definitely. Listen to my podcast. <laughs> yeah, I already played that at the beginning, but it just actually deserves another plug. Listen to Tuman's podcast. He's actually way smarter than... Uh, the rest of us on things like boxing mechanics and, you know, standing Bobby Knuckles more than any of us ever have. So that's what anyone should do. Uh, go watch Tengra Dome. Go watch the rest of the podcast on the Fight Side Network. You know, all the plugs. And stay safe.